Hello, and welcome to episode 122 of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast. We are coming to you, as always, from the faculty lounge of the Ricochet University School of Law, where the air conditioning is always on high just to irritate the New York Times. I should note, by the way, that the faculty lounge will be relocating soon. This show, uh, starting next month, I believe, will be a production of the Hoover Institution, to whom we are incredibly grateful which means it will also now be commercial-free, so we're very excited about that, although I don't think it's official until John passes the drug test. <laughs> I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and now author of the Magic Mike graphic novel, and I am joined, as always, by the Mozart and Beethoven of the conservative legal movement. They are wow. Richard Anthony Lawrence, a professor of law at NYU, senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. And we should start out, fellas, by apologizing for an unusually long absence between shows. Uh, Richard was out gallivanting across Europe. John was out gallivanting across Latin America. I was out gallivanting across um, Maine. But the weirdest travel arrangement of all might be the one that Richard is engaged in right now. You are coming to us from an inn somewhere in Vermont where you are for the purposes of a music festival. What? Well, I'm not I'm not performing at the festival, but the, well, still, oh it's a music God. festival in Vermont, Richard, which I can well, only the, imagine and a lot well, of thoughts the, about the patriarchy. Uh, well, no, the reason why I really like this is you started to talk about Mozart and Beethoven, right? Oh, okay. And and what happens is I'm visiting. I'm going to give a plug for it uh, at the Marlboro Music Festival, um, which is essentially a chamber music specialty, uh, which does a huge amount of Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, and so forth. And I happened to hear a concert last night with a wonderful Mozart piece. Uh, it was one of his serenade. No, it was a divertimento for eight instruments written when he was about 20 years old. And it makes me realize how much of my life has been an utter wandering in the wilderness compared to somebody whose product. You need to go to Vermont for that? I could have told you that. <laughs> no, but anyway, we had just but done it, the podcast. It, it, we could have spent an hour telling you about no, that. The point is, it was just so wonderful to sort of hear these wonderful musicians. And the Matsuko Yoshida, one of the great pianists, uh, uh, played a very complex Schubert piece with the new co-director, Jonathan Biss, of the uh, thing. And it was a kind of a gala evening. And it turns out, of course, it's always law-related. Uh, my contact is uh, Christopher Serkin, who is the new chairman of the board of this operation, whose grandfather is Rudolf. Off circuit, one of my all-time favorite pianists. John has never heard of him, I'm sure, because he doesn't play bebop. Um, and <laughs> bebop is from the fifties. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of insult <laughs> is that? <laughs> uh, but anyhow, he was the person who was so instrumental in founding it. And there are two styles of music. I don't know why I'm going into this, but just a little bit. There are people who believe in bombast, and there are people who believe essentially uh, let the music breathe, let it relax, and so forth. I've always been in the ladder camp and as is the marlboro festival so if you want to breathe easy and hear great musicianship that's a place to go speaking of breathe easy i do want to get john's first person testimonial because john you were at you were at machu picchu right oh, yeah. Speaking of that, did you go to oh, Cusco? yeah yeah i went to at eleven thousand. I, I went to see i i thought of richard my whole trip not just because i was high in the sky and lacking oxygen and not thinking clearly but i went to lima first to do uh, two conferences on economic liberty under the Constitution and then went to Machu Picchu. It was awesome. Also, you know what? There's 3,000 kinds of potatoes in 
Peru, so I could eat healthy French fries to my heart's content. <laughs> That's my major takeaway from Peru. You know, I actually thought about you, John, while I was in Maine, because anytime that I consume a food that is absolutely oh. terrible for me, but kind of appealing at some level, Did you're you the have first a McRib? person. McRib? No, I didn't. I did not oh. have a McRib, but what we oh. were trying to sort of hit for the main culinary cycle. Most of the entries in which are are fairly obvious, right? Like you have to have a lobster roll. Yeah, you no, no, have no, no. Choice called France lobster. <laughs> in in Bahaba where we were, yeah. uh, lobster roll. You gotta have like fresh blueberries. Um, a whoopie pie is a main thing, just like it's a Pennsylvania thing. Those are the only two states for some reason. But Sean, you are you familiar with the beverage Moxie? Woo. Oh, what's it? Moxie is a main specialty. It's like their state soft drink and oddly made in New Hampshire for some reason. But people in Maine are the only ones who drink it. Really? And it's like a, a really aggressive, not particularly pleasant cough syrup. But it oh, feels like it's sounds, got Sean you written all sounds over enti- it. I'm enticed. It's bracing. I'm enticed. Yeah. Actually, yeah, in Peru, is- I had something called Inca Cola, which tasted – this was – I think they should export it here because Inca Cola tasted like bubble gum in, in a bottle. Inca oh, really? Yeah, bubble sure gum flavored not, cola. Are you awesome. sure this was not a euphemism for ayahuasca? Hey, I, they also have coca leaves, which you just chew and drink all the time. <laughs> for entertainment purposes only. All right. Uh, I should steer us into the actual content. So let me start with this because this is our first show since uh, the Supreme Court uh, term ended. And there's a number of the cases that I, I want to get your guys' reaction to. But I, I want to start – um, slightly different, kind of at, at 40,000 feet, as we think about this term in its entirety. So this is Justice Kavanaugh's first year on the court, Justice Gorsuch's second. And, of course, that's reflective of the fact that no more Kennedy or Scalia, who both played very distinctive roles during their time on the court. Do we have enough of a sample size now? Have we seen enough cases where we have a sense of what the, the new dynamics are? John, I'll let you start. No, oh. go ahead. John. Unless you're raring for it, Richard. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I always love to hear the dulcet remarks of my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting with you. So you, really, you've got you know Kavanaugh's first term, but also Gorsuch has only been on for two years, and so you are seeing, I think, a shaping of a new court. And so what I would say the dominant theme is, which is not what the media focused on is this hostility to the administrative state. And so I was – I'm pitching here this piece I wrote in The Atlantic today, which argues that if you look at the cases where the conservatives are voting together in opposition to the liberals, you see consistently this suspicion of the administrative state. Uh, you could say uh, there's one case which called for the overrule of a doctrine called the Chevron Doctrine which is one of the most important doctrines of administrative law, where I think you can count up five justices now who are in favor of that. You have four justices. This is really incredible. Four justices. This will make Richard so happy. You have four justices who actually call for the restoration of what's called the non-delegation doctrine, which has not appeared since 1937, which is a doctrine which says Congress, as a matter of constitutional law, cannot give away too much of its power to the administrative agencies. Everyone thought this thing has been dead for you know since the New Deal. You have four justices in an opinion saying we ought to take this question up and consider whether to resurrect it. Um, and the fifth just the, the fifth vote uh, was Justice Kavanaugh was, uh, was missing. Yeah, he was sitting out that particular case. And then 
Right, so you have the, and then this is the argument I think was might be the most uh, might be stretching on my part, but I think it's true is even the census case, which is the biggest loss for the Trump administration, I think from this last term, actually was a slap in the face of the administrative state too, because in that case, Chief Justice Roberts, the fifth vote, and the author opinion said, we want judges to apply extra strict looks at why the administrative state is really issuing some regulation or doing something, in this case, adding a question on citizenship to the census, uh, if, which if applied to lots of other cases would be a stunning reversal of the mm-hmm. attitude of courts to administrative state. So I think that's the real hidden story. You know, you could talk about the bigger cases like the gerrymandering case was a win for conservatives or other cases which were losses for conservatives. But I think the real theme that people are missing here is this is a court, a conservative court that's going to start – uh, applying, uh, I don't know what the, is the you tell me, Troy. Is it the side eye? Is that what the you know the side <laughs> sideways eye? I I don't know what this means, but like I you see realize the sideways John, looking I, eye at the administrative state. I think what you're doing is going to me for sort of youth lingo. I might yes. have been young when we started doing this show. It's been ten years. I'm the wrong really? guy to ask. Okay, well I've I, I, I I'm sufficiently old and have a sufficiently strong <laughs> memory. I mean, I actually do remember the day that Brown v. Board of Education came down. Education came down, and Mr. Greenberg told us of its importance in sixth grade. But I'm gonna, on you. To, you remember the day when Marbury versus Madison? Oh came wow! Down. Well, being wow. there, it was only 1803. <laughs> uh, but look, I, John, I think is hit. But I, I think he let me just fill in a couple of the details on this, so as to indicate the the way in which it does. Uh, first of all, uh, Kavanaugh and uh, and Gorsuch do not always vote together. Kavanaugh, for example, is more willing to uh, have exotic theories of antitrust and tort liability than Gorsuch. And on those issues, I'm pretty much a Gorsuch-type guy. On the criminal cases, Gorsuch is consistently libertarian. And so actually four conservatives and four liberals and one conservative have dominated the term. But on the administrative law stuff, I think pretty much what is said, John said, is true. But let me give a couple of illustrations to explain just how powerful a trend it is, not in terms of what might happen in the future, but what has happened in the past. One of the cases which is uh, widely ignored because it sounds like a yawner is a case called Nick versus the Township of Scott. And this is a case in which I'm now going to give you the rule and then I'm going to explain to you why you ought to wake up and listen to um, uh, the rule that exists previously existed said when you bring a 1983 action for the deprivation of property, you first have to exhaust your administrative agencies, and secondly, you must have to sue. Richard, wait, before you start, can I just describe the fact – this is what we know as the old lady cemetery case. Yeah, I'll, I'll get case. the facts in a second. <laughs> yeah, it's such a great case. Come on, uh, yeah, this the, is the, the old lady the, cemeteries case. The facts never figured into this case except for one very nice feature. So what happens is you had to go through this huge rigmarole. And we always course back into state court. And when you were court back into state court, two things happened to you. One is the agencies would string you out forever so you'd never get a final judgment against you. And secondly, then you had to go into state court. The state court would rule against you. This is a federal statute. You go into federal court and say, I want to be heard about my federal came in federal court. And they say, sorry, race judicator. The thing has already been decided. What Justice Roberts did is he did – the cases John mentioned had to do with a little old lady – 
who had a cemetery, and the state passed the statute. Uh, you forgot said, the most important part in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, and <laughs> well, she didn't even have. There were people who had been buried on the on the land where she lived, right? I mean, yes. this wasn't yeah. a major cemetery. No, that no, was, it's a right. private no, yeah, cemetery. Exactly right. But all cemeteries were to be open to people to come in. Right. Um, she called it a regulatory taking. Actually, it's a trespassory taking. So it's a different set of rules, but it doesn't matter. And she didn't want this to happen. And the state knew that it was in tough ground. And so what it did is it decided not to enforce this particular rule. And what she did, since she's trying to stop them rather than asking them for a permit, which is critical, she marches into federal court under Section 1983, and she says this is a deprivation of constitutional right. Every case that comes in under 1983 should be able to bypass the state apparatus. This case is no different from a civil rights case. Let me win. And she won which means every future land use case in the United States will have a completely different complexion because you get the court faster, at least as against the uh, state law situation, and you get a federal form. Uh, they did not talk about the finality requirement, which you have to face when you're seeking a benefit from the government. Uh, here the government was going after her. But if you read Justice Roberts' opinion, it's quite clear he does not like that either. And so if you overrule uh, the so-called Williamson County case from 1985, there is a complete revolution in the way in which land use and similar disputes will go. They'll come fast. They'll come into the federal courts. Delay tactics will be put out. And he also says on the merits, starts talking about property rights should not be treated as second class, which is code for a higher level of scrutiny. This is a huge change. Uh, the rent stabilization laws in New York, everybody's going to be suing in federal court um, to stop them to give you but one illustration. Uh, the second case that one wants to do with is a case involving something known as our deference. It's another unit. But it basically said is if you have a – I mean the reason that people – lawyers would understand this, but non-lawyers listening to this show uh, may be of the impression that the sexy issues like reinforcement are more important than these delegation issues that John talked about. <laughs> they are, the the more, perspective here, the sexy issues like reapportionment. The kids yeah. love reapportionment. <laughs> well, but I mean, that gets all the stuff. We have to, we have to give but, these uh, parental guidance ratings on these opinions. Yeah, yeah, PG, PG. <laughs> yeah. But those cases only concern apportionment. The stuff on administrative law and federal jurisdiction affects a billion cases every year. Well, maybe a few less, but that's the idea. And so the hour deference said you had to show extreme deference uh, to a state, a federal agency that construed a federal statute, which meant that they did the most absurd things imaginable, case after case after case, and you could never dislodge them. Well, people know now that this is very uncomfortable. So Justice Kagan defends the old hour rule, and in defending it, she completely guts it. Uh, so that even though she says that the rule is there, now before you get this huge deference, you have to show that you've exhausted every technique of federal interpretation. Um, she makes a mess of the opinion by remanding instead of actually reading the case and talking about it. Uh, but it's unmistakable uh, that even the people on the left have moved way over in terms of their willingness to defer to state administrative and federal administrative agencies. And as Justice Roberts said, Chief Justice said, look, you know, she's doing this. Gorsuch is saying the whole thing ought to disappear under Article Three, separation of powers. We have to give them our honest, best opinion. The difference between the two of them is really quite small. So I basically think that 
hour is 90% gone, uh, given what has happened. So these two changes themselves really are not, as John says, what are we going to do with Chevron, which is the major deference doctrine. Uh, these are things that have already happened. And Chevron, which I think is largely indefensible, as John, I think, agrees, is likely under these circumstances uh, to be subject to a similar modification over time. I want to go back to those those sexy cases that you so abhor, Richard. John, you made a reference a little bit earlier to the to the census case. We should just remind everybody what was at stake there, although it's pretty hard to avoid the way that the press has been covering it. So the Trump administration wanted to add uh, this question to the census questionnaire asking people about their citizenship status. And the uh, census is administered by the Commerce Department. So Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, is trying to advance this. And the thing that I want you to start us with, John, is the uh, analysis of the, the pretextual factor that, that comes up in this, de- this decision from Chief Justice Roberts because this was reported in some places as the court says no. And that, that's not exactly it when you read it. It's the court says not like this. But there's a very specific reason that the Chief Justice has for this, and if you read this opinion – He's basically calling the Secretary of Commerce a liar in the way that this was presented. So walk us through this. Yeah, I, you've got it exactly right, Troy. The court actually says – this sort of bears on the news out today that Trump decided not to go forward. But the court said it's legitimate to ask this question. There's nothing unconstitutional about it. Um, and it's been asked many times in the past on past censuses. Uh, the government can have a legitimate reason to want to know how many citizens live in different regions of the country. The problem was – and this is the remarkable thing about the opinion. The problem was the court said, we don't believe what you're telling us in court was the real reason, which was to enforce the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, instead, we see in the press but more in the trial court, we see indications that – and this is what he called it. That reason was, quote unquote, contrived. And so therefore, we're sending it back. Now, you can try to put the question in, but you got to do it the right way, which means having a legitimate reason and proving that's your reason. Uh, whether And I think there's plenty of reasons you might want to know how many citizens are in the country uh, versus aliens. I think it's kind of obvious. Uh, but what Roberts did was tricky is that he didn't give the government enough time to be able to do that and print the census questionnaire at the same time. The thing that's uh, the legal significance, put aside the political – politically, this – right? there were people who were worried, oh, they're putting the census – this question of the census in order to drive down minority responses and that will have an effect on the enumeration. By the way, I think that's completely swamped by the gerrymandered case anyway. But suppose that's really what you're worried about. Then, you know – I, I, the real – this doesn't have a really important legal significance. This is kind of a one-off question except for the fact that the court – Justice Roberts says, well, courts in the future, they can say we don't believe agencies and why they say they're doing things. We think they're really doing something like changing pollution requirements for political reasons or to pay people off or to help interest groups. And now we're going to allow courts to take that into account. And if they think that's the real reason, they can stop the agencies from acting. That is potentially a revolutionary change in the way courts do business and could lead to a paralysis of this administrative state and its efforts to keep growing. That's actually a big deal, much more so than whether the question makes it into the sentence, census in the end or not. 
Look, I agree with John on this. I, I read the Chief Justice's opinion. I said to myself, did the same man who wrote the thing in Nick write the thing with respect to the commerce case? And it was very hard to think that he did. Um, there are two ways to think about the commerce case, and I actually thought the guy who got it right was the district court judge, Jesse Furman, whom nobody seemed to pay the slightest respect to. I and- don't. <laughs> Well, I think he got it right, but let me explain why. Uh, The first thing is he did not rely on any grand principles. Uh, What there was was an exhaustive amount of information in the record and statutory authorization to use that information in which basically what they said is we have come to the general conclusion uh, that if you start putting this question on the census, you'll get less reliable information than if you keep it out of the census and acquire that information by other means. And there's an explicit statutory provision which actually calls for that approach. And so that's the provision that he started to apply. And everybody seemed to think that it was irrelevant to the case. And then they went back to these grounds. And John is absolutely right. If the motive case turns out to be absolutely decisive, every complex inquiry is going to change. It's not only going to change, by the way, with what you do, but the nature of the discovery that you're going to take when somebody wants to challenge these things is they're going to put all of the people who communicated one way with another with somebody or other and ask them to explain all the correspondence you get in an effort to find some kind of an impure motive. And those inquiries are are literally quite crazy under these circumstances. And the reason for doing it, I thought, was sort of silly. Uh, Departments are in constant contact with each other. And in this case, it was Commerce and the Department of, of Justice. And the charge was that Mr. Ross had prompted the Department of Commerce to That prompted the Department of Justice to answer these questions, so they weren't bona fide or legitimate inquiries. I mean, given the constant flow of information going in both directions, that kind of thing could be found in every case. So I really don't want to do it. Uh, Justice Thomas, for dissenting three, I guess it was, John would know this better than I, his attitude has always been that on these executive matters, the president is basically a large autonomous person, and he continued to play that line here, and so he said the thing should apply because if Ross wants to do it, he wants to do it. And the last opinion on this was Justice Breyer, and it was either powerful or perverse or both, and you have to take up your mind. Uh, Justice Breyer is a great believer in the arbitrary and capricious standard with teeth in administrative law. And so what happens is he went through exhaustively all of the record and all of the expert witnesses and found that that each and every one of them had come to the conclusion it would cost you less and give you more if you took this particular question out of the census and did it in the way in which it was uh, recommended by Furman down below. And he said, if you're wrong on the cost and you're wrong on the benefits, and pretty conclusively so, it's arbitrary and capricious. So now what you do is you could see the way in which the landscape is going to line up on this issue. You get people like Thomas says, I don't want to look to discretion at all. My view is that this is exactly what the president's supposed to do. Don't trouble me with motive. Robert's saying, well, generally it's within his power or the power of the Secretary of Commerce. But what I want you to do is I want you to look at motive. And then Breyer's saying, well, I don't mind if you look at motive, but when I look at the really close analysis of this stuff, it's wrong. So we have at this point a three-way split on what we mean by arbitrary and capricious, which is one of the most important phrases in the Administrative Procedure Act. It's a mess. So Wilbur Ross gets a smackdown in this case. We also have uh, another controversy outside of the courts for right now, but involving a cabinet secretary, which is there's been this drumbeat, especially from congressional Democrats, over the last, I guess, week or two at this point about Alex Acosta, the Secretary of Labor, and not 
controversy about him in his current capacity, but in his capacity, I guess, over a decade ago now when he was a U.S. attorney down in South Florida. And this is all because we are seeing the reemergence of Jeffrey Epstein, this um, – Yeah, well, yes. Don't yeah, call yeah, Sorry about the name. Distant relation, no? <laughs> very distant. Very distant. This is very Early wealthy – Distant, distant. Uh, this very wealthy financier who uh, has a history of, shall we say, troublesome relations with underage girls. He's being brought up right now on charges that – I mean he's amounting to running a sex trafficking operation. The criticism of Acosta – is that Acosta pursued prosecution of Epstein when this came up before. Background was 2007 or 2008 when this came up. And they only managed to get uh, 13 months in jail for Epstein on a on a plea deal. And so the, the criticism is that he settled for for so little in this case, which now is looking you know much more serious for Epstein. And his defense, he gave a press conference yesterday is that he had so little to go on at the time. The testimony in this case was going to be contradictory. In some cases, it actually might be sort of exculpatory of Epstein, that he got the absolute best that could be got given the constraints around him at the time. For those of us who have not been paying particularly close attention to this, certainly not over the span of a decade, John, I'll start with you. How should we think about those charges? Is is Acosta right that he was merely making a concession to the constraints that were on him at that time, or could he have done more? No, I think what people forget is most crime in the country is prosecuted by state and local uh, law enforcement. So the most heinous crimes, murder, you know, a violent assault, rape, robbery, all those crimes, the primary, you know, the primary institution that's supposed to take care of that is local government. The federal government, you know, the U.S. attorney, the Justice Department only really gets involved if there's some kind of uh, national link to uh, the crime. So uh, you know, as we know now, which we may not have known then, it seems like Epstein was shuttling these women between New York and Florida and international locations on his private plane. That would be something that would call in a, something like a U.S. attorney, and that's why it might, it's appropriate for the, I think, the Southern District of New York to bring these charges now. It's not clear that that was well known at the time, ten years ago, when Acosta was involved. So so one is usually the U.S. attorney will defer and let the state and local people take the lead. Second, it sounds like from the fact – and this is just a factual question and we're going to have to learn more from Acosta and the Florida DA, the Palm Beach County DA here. The, uh, the, uh, Acosta said in his press conference that the state and local people were going to let this guy off without any jail time. And he claims that he got involved in order to pressure – uh, state and local officials who kind of it kind of suggested he, that they were corrupt in some way um, were were not you know were not doing their job. So if that's actually true, then I think Acosta is somewhat blameless in this. But it depends really on what those facts are. Back then, ten years ago, what was the DA really up to? Why did Acosta really get involved? Were there difficulties with the witnesses and the kind of testimony they would give? We don't know enough to make that judgment. But the general presumption is always in law enforcement that state and local are supposed to take the lead on this. And U.S. attorneys only there for nationwide, uh, you know, so nationwide uh, crime flows, which 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 we now know about because of the facts that have emerged uh, later. 
Look, I regard this as a minor scandal on the part of the Democrats to get rid of somebody whom they oppose today on clearly ideological grounds. Uh, the basic attitude that I would take towards all of these cases is that we now have a regrettable tendency 10 years after the thing has happened or more uh, to try to second-guess people on the basis of information, most of which comes to light only afterwards. Uh, to give you a comparison of this, I thought one of the truly objectionable features that one saw in the Kavanaugh hearings was every Everybody on the Democratic side trying to go back to the time when he was essentially the traffic cop in the George W. Bush administration deciding what issues went to the president, what issues did not. And they tried to basically pin him with the substantive involvement in everything, even though he was essentially a sorting agency. Um, it's so easy to misrepresent the past and it's so difficult to defend yourself that I think these things really ought to be put off of lip boundary. And in this particular case, what John said clearly – they are making this not before they heard what was happening to Jeffrey Epstein um, at this particular time, but only after they heard what happened to Jeffrey. And, you know, my attitude about that is, well, this is sort of easy now to hit the pinata as hard as you possibly can because you've got all the ducks in your row. And what happens is everybody we know has past records and so forth, some of which may be wrong, some of which may be right. But if it's fair game, to exhume all of this stuff, you're going to see one spectacle after another. So to give you yet another illustration, Lord knows I'm not a supporter of Joe Biden, um, and I think many of the things he stands for are incorrect. Uh, but I think it's absolutely scandalous to go after the way in which he conducted himself in the Senate in, you know, in the early 1980s and so forth, or the late 1970s, whenever he first arrived there. And he arrived as a young man and say, well, you know, you managed to deal with segregationists. You know, he didn't have the luxury to ignore them when they had certain kinds of power. So I generally don't think that this open season should there. I have a kind of moral statute of limitations in all of these cases, which is if I hear that something is 10 or 15 years old, I don't want to even know about it because I'm sure that it's going to be corrupt information coming on one side with an inadequate response on the other side. And what you do is you won't get Acosta to leave on this, but they're trying to shame him so as to diminish his status and his effectiveness. And I think that this is a terrible way in which to destroy government, whether it's done on the left or whether it's done on the right. And so I hope that he weathers the storm. I would like President Trump and the Republicans to come out and say, we think there's a fine and upright gentleman. Uh, we don't think that the this is the time to exhume all of this past evidence and that what you really ought to do is if we want to attack somebody for making a sweetheart deal, do so at the time that the deal is made, not on the basis of subsequently discovered evidence. And Trump has been fairly defensive of him thus far in, in sort of a qualified way. He seems to be leaving himself some, some wiggle room there. So let me ask you this then. In a scenario like this where you're talking about previous professional conduct, in this case over a decade ago, what would it take? I mean, what would be the circumstances under which you would say it's appropriate to ask somebody to resign or to, or to fire them based on something that far in the past? Is sort of active malfeasance or corruption? Yeah, I mean, I think what you really have to do is to show that he had in his possession the kind of information which would have made him subject to immediate disciplinary action for the course that he'd undertaken. And this case doesn't sound remotely like that, given the fact that he was trying to play the bad cop and everybody else was playing the good cop. And it's also, I think, clear that even though nobody ever condoned sex trafficking back in 2007 – 
I think the kind of burden that's associated with it today is much heavier than it was then as a function of, of the Me Too movement and all of the really heavy concerns associated with sexual harassment. And so I don't think this case comes close to, to that sort of stuff. If somebody who was a colleague of his said, you know, he took a bribe, he took a dive or something of the sort, uh, then I would be all in favor of saying he has to have some political, you know, social sanctions. But for this, no. So I'm going to move us on to the religion case that the, the court took up out of Maryland. This was the case that had uh, at its root the question of whether this cross that's on public property in Maryland, this, this big 40-foot cross that they put up, I believe it, it ended up being transferred to the state government. I think it was originally um, erected on private land. That's right. But this cross is up there to honor uh, military deaths. From World War One, and a group of I don't remember whether they've referred to themselves as secular humanists or, or atheists, but a, a group American was, Humanist Association. American Humanist Association. Thank you, Richard. This group uh, brought suit in this case, saying this is impermissible to have on public land because this is this explicitly Christian symbol. It's obviously promoting one very distinct religious view, and. The court disagreed with that, and it disagreed with that partially on the grounds Justice Alito, in, in this opinion, talks about the fact that, yes, of course, this cross is a Christian symbol, but it's also a symbol with a, a sort of broader cultural import than that. In fact, there's this comparison that he makes in there to uh, to Notre Dame about the fact that this has a, a cultural significance in France that transcends its original sort of religious significance. John, your reaction to that diagnosis from Justice Alito? You know, it's, I, I got to say, on the one hand, I don't, I don't really find these cases that interesting, um, but there's enormous amounts of litigation uh, over them. And I think Alito's uh, real point is that the cross is not just a religious symbol. It is, right? So if you look at uh, he, he points to uh, wartime cemeteries, right? But you said, you know, you find the cross in lots of symbols. It may, ha- it has a religious origin, um, but it's become so used for so many other things. It's a symbol of a lot of things. Um, but you know, it reminds me. There's this uh, judge, uh, Judge Bea, the Ninth Circuit, who gives this uh, very funny speech where he goes through all of these religious symbol cases because there was a case a few years ago where the court, in the same term, said. Having the Ten Commandments uh, outside the – I believe it was a, a, a state capital on the grounds was constitutional because it was part of other historical symbols and so on. But if you put the Ten Commandments in the courtroom you know, behind the judge, it's unconstitutional. And so Judge Baker went through all these different symbols and so on. He said the only rule that explains what's constitutional and what's not constitutional is whether the religious symbol is outdoors or indoors. And he's completely right. Every time it's true. Every time the religious symbol is outdoors, it's upheld by the court. Every time the symbol is indoors, it is struck down by the court. No, nothing the courts actually say in these opinions ever to me makes a whole lot of sense. And they tie themselves into knots, multi-factor balancing tests. But in reality, the test is really provided by whether it can be rained on or not. <laughs> Richard, I, I, I mean, my view about John is uh, he has the ability to find simplicity out of chaos. I can bring chaos to simplicity. <laughs> That's also the case. I mean, but I mean, I actually gave this case as a final examination question to a common law class that I taught last year. And, and I think 
amongst conservative students, the answer was fairly closely divided. And I think there's another factor going on here, which strangely enough relates back to the point that I was just making before, um, which is how do you take into account the past when you're trying to deal with the present? Only here it's a very different relationship and it actually cuts in the opposite direction. One of the things that uh, Justice Alito stressed was that if you looked at this, it was first done on private land in 1918 by a private committee. Um, it certainly had religious symbols, but it did not exclude that one would see then than one would have to see today. Uh, the place gets taken over by the public government to run this in 1961, and they put in a fair sum of money to keep it up to date and so forth. And so Alito has basically one very powerful reaction to this. I don't know, he says, whether or not indoors or outdoors, I would be supportive of this if somebody decided to put it into place in 2019 when the ethos on separation of church and state is very different. But he says, I think it's a terrible thing to go back and to try to exhume the past when, in fact, the motives at that particular time were laudable and essentially this was done in conformity with standard practices. It gets carried forward. Uh, so he basically has what I like to call a system of customary or prescriptive defense. Uh, this may have been wrong, but over time it becomes right. If you're doing it new, it isn't going to be right. And I think there's a lot to be said uh, for that kind of position. And what it does, in effect, is it grandfathers old things, but it doesn't allow you to put new things in that would give rise to the problem. The other thing he said, which I also think is right, has to do with the nature of the standing doctrine. And what happens is the humanists in this particular case uh, said that they were entitled to sue to get this thing down because every time they drove along a public road, they would see this and they would think of the grievous offense to the principles of separation between church and state, and that's a sufficient hook to get them in. It may well be in some crazy legal sense that it's there, but in general, I think what happens is if we start allowing mere offense to what takes place on public or private property uh, to be the grounds for a particular particular lawsuit, what happens is everybody can sue everybody for anything that they want to do, uh, pleading their own offense. And so the traditional tort rule was actually you had to show you know, a bodily injury, lost a reputation of something of the sort, or if you were dealing with equitable harms, you had to show that there was a diversion and removal of the uh, assets of a corporation or of a taxpayer's assets uh, to some private party. And so I think he came out with the right result, but I really want to make sure that you hedge it because I think if you were to do this today and try to put this thing up with public funds on that particular space with the Christian cross, first of all, it would not get through because of the huge change in ethnic opposition in the United States today and the sensibilities. Uh, but I do think that what we would do today is not the way we should judge what happened before. You know, think of the what I regard as a scandal. I saw a picture. It made me want to cry. Kate Smith was a great singer, a you know, heroic person. Somebody doesn't like that she sang a song that Paul Robeson sang in 1931. That's why darkies were born. And they bundle her up in black paper before they could pick down the statue, as though you're trying to get rid of somebody who had the play. And that's the danger of using modern standards against ancient situations. Half the actors in the 1920s used blackface, including Al Jolson and the jazz singer. And No one would use it today, but are we to ban all movies that contain it and to refuse to deal with all actors who use it? I think that that's going way the hell too far in dealing with these kinds of issues. 
I don't want to tarry too long on this case, but John, I do want to get your reaction to what um, Richard said there. And this is something that you see from Justice Breyer in, in the case as well as this this focus on when the cross was actually erected and what kind of social sensibilities it, it represented at the, at the time. Are you sympathetic to Richard's argument there that it, it really matters the environment in which it was put up? Oh, well, that's important to Justice Alito. I think uh, Justice Alito he said it explicitly. Yeah, yeah. That he says that you know, the fact that it's been a long, uh, you know, long pedigree, not challenged until recently, and has a sort of historical significance are all important. But look, you know, I, I like. Justice Alito, I think he's a good guy. I think his opinions generally reach the right outcomes. But a lot of times he writes these opinions that I don't really see the principle. <laughs> so like Justice Alito's opinion is really just a, like a list of all the characteristics and facts about this cross. But it's hard to say what the whole, you know, what the legal theory is about this. And, you know, and he has like, you know, sometimes like he has these kind of – like the weirdest outcome he had was this case. I don't know if you remember. It also involved religious symbolism in a way. It was uh, at military funerals. There was right. this weirdo church, you know, that – I mean it was like a church of like 10 people I think. But this – I think Westboro Baptist Church it was called. And they yes. would uh, yell and scream and protest every military funeral they could because they wanted to protest gay marriage. To nothing to do with military. And just as you know, the court as a whole said, well, they have a First Amendment right to do that. Justice Alito basically said, no, that's wrong. It's a disgrace. It, you know, it, you know, it's uh, an insult to military families and their service. I totally agree with him <laughs> as a matter of the policies. But he, and, but they're, they're, like what he was arguing didn't make sense as a matter of legal doctrine. No, and I no, find well, this but, case too doesn't really make sense well, to me I go as back, a legal doctrine. The Westboro case. What happened is these guys created a din. Uh, but what Justice Alito did, and I agree with him, he says, does this count as actionable tort under the principle of intentional infliction of emotional distress? Now, this is something which is a kind of a slightly difficult area in the tort law, to put it mildly. But basically, the distinction has been made and it has lasted now for over 50 years. Same problem about prescription, uh, that it's one thing to find out that through a news report that somebody is yelling and screaming, and it's another thing to have direct sensory impact on it. And with respect to the first thing, you get no protection. With respect to the second thing, you could get an injunction or damages. Um, wait, it, wait, wait. I skipped this part of tort law, but if that's true, then isn't our podcast a tort? Um, actually, <laughs> intentional no, I only emotional distress it, on people? Uh, through extreme and out, uh, through extreme. Don, you've got to go back and read the second restatement. <laughs> uh, through extreme and outrageous misconduct. <laughs> and if you then look at the examples, you come close to them, John, but I am absolutely. I was going to say, extreme and outrageous misconduct. I think that's in our iTunes description. <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, this is like, I mean, for example, the case I remember from my toys were Rock Hill and Pollard. Why do I remember? In which somebody goes to a doctor's office, brings in a child on a rainy day, and um, he refuses to treat them and starts to yell and scream at them and throw them out. It's not malpractice because there's no duty to treat. Uh, but you could argue that that's a kind of extreme and outrageous misconduct, or at least a jury could kind of find it. Whereas the stuff that we do, um, these are not trying to attack people's sense 
circumstances. We're not trying to intimidate them in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and they're always free to turn us off. And so we're not getting out there on the street and yelling in somebody's ear. And that's what Alito wanted to say about that. And generally, as you know, I have a kind of a very strong position on that issue, is that if you want to figure out what is illegal or legal under the Constitution, figure out the way in which a sound system of tort or contract law would treat it, and then try to carry that over to explain the public areas. And I think in this particular case, in Westboro, he came up with the right conclusion. Uh, I think, you know, if they were doing this kind of protest four miles away, nobody would say anything. So long as they're out of earshot, I think they're probably safe. And what the last thing you want to do is to start suing those kinds of people because we'll only encourage them to do it more and you will lose. So I think the First Amendment right ends when the noise starts to go and really start to impinge upon what's going on in these cases. And I don't think in this particular case, whatever you want to say about the cross that's been long there, to call this extreme and outrageous, deeply offensive and so forth, no. So I can understand uh, why you might want to remove John Calhoun from the Yale uh, dormitory system, even though he was a great man in some ways. But I, again, utterly mystified as to why you would do the same thing. Oh, oh. I, Smith. I, hate, I hate Calhoun. I'm glad his name is off the building. But you're right. I granularly agree, Richard, that this sort of histor- retroactive editing of history, I think, is a big mistake. And, and, and we, lots of love. I totally agree with you. Although we, I, I got no, I got no brief for John Calhoun. I think. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, God I would say hell too. But that's why it was so perfect for him to be the for it to be the name of a Yale residential college. <laughs> John, you went to Yale, didn't you? Or just to the law school? Law school. You went to Harvard, some such odd, godforsaken place. Well, they they're editing all the things there too. Oh, well, they're, they're taking people off the yeah, royal steel, right? Yeah, and they're kicking people out as house masters because they – oh, we're not even allowed to call them masters, sorry, because they represent – They're residential deans now. Yeah, residential I mean, look, look Harvard, is a, <laughs> Harvard is a self-parody. Yeah, Why is it that the greatest minds assembled in the face of the globe have to reduce themselves to such juvenile behavior? It's something I never have quite understood, and I guess I really don't understand it. You have to essentially live with the imperfections of your heroes. Um, there was a great piece in the Wall Street. Journal about uh, fairly strong evidence suggesting that uh, Martin Luther King stuck around while one of his buddies was raping some woman or have serious sexual mis- you know, uh, maledictions and misbehavior and so forth. Misconduct. And misconduct is stronger than that. You know, if this were anybody else, do we take him, get rid of his national holiday? No, you don't want to do that. Do we decide that since Jeff Jefferson doesn't own slaves, we no longer read the Declaration of Independence? I just don't understand where these people are coming from. Um, when you have pervasive social institutions that we find bad today, we do not want to judge people who live within that framework by the standards that we would apply if some Thomas Jefferson were to come back and say, what's really wrong with America in 2019 is we have haven't reinstituted the institution of slavery, uh, which we wrongfully got rid of. I can understand people wanting to get rid of that guy. Uh, but Jefferson, in fact, among slave owners, was probably one of the more cautious. Oh, don't get me started about Jefferson. Jesus Christ. Uh, you don't well, like him? <laughs> okay, I think he was like the now, Nixon of his day. Now, oh, now, oh, now, wait a minute. Well, oh, boy. Well, you've planted a seed. We will do that in a future episode. But I have to get us. Richard said he was vexed by juvenile behavior. And Richard, do I have a story for you? Oh, thank you. I, John is aware of this. I don't think you are because you're a smart enough man to not spend a lot of time on the Internet. But thank there you. is a video that has gone viral over the course of the last week 
of this young girl. I don't know exactly how old she is. I know she's a minor. That's going to become relevant here in a moment in the San Antonio area area who filmed herself walking into a grocery store, going down the frozen foods aisle. She removes a quart of uh, ice cream from the freezer, opens the top, pulls the wrapping off the top, licks the ice cream a couple of times, puts it back on the shelf. And of course, this is, this led to all kinds of outrage on the internet, but it has also generated a follow-on story about the legal consequences. Does she is because she is a minor, not going to receive the kind of treatment she were uh, were she of age. But in the state of Texas, were she of age, uh, she could be tried as an adult for second-degree food tampering, which could carry up to a twenty-year sentence. And this has led to a big debate. Uh, including amongst our friends over at the the Volokh conspiracy over whether this might be an overreaction, even though the public is calling for her head for what is an admittedly stupid, admittedly gross, but at the end of the day, adolescent prank. Well, the question is, how did people discover that the ice cream had been tampered with? She posted uh, the video. Oh, she posted the video. So yeah, they could, doing it. Yeah. So and they, now, they, by the way, other people are doing this in other places now because we live in the worst era in human history. <laughs> I mean, in terms of sort of vulgarity. Look, my view about this, if she had done the following thing, known that she contained typhoid, decided to open a container up and lick it, put the germs back in and cover it up and not tell the story, and then somebody – as far as we can tell, she's healthy. She's yes, I mean, I mean, uh, at that point, well, physically, be, anyway. Yeah, yes. it, would, yes. it would be actually a form of attempted murder. Yes, I mean, or murder. I mean, doing that kind of thing. I, I think, given the fact that she posted it and so forth, and it's stupid, I think she ought to be subject to some kind of sanction. But twenty years. Um, I think that's a bit over the top, actually. Um, concealment, to my mind, would make a huge difference in case like this. And I don't think anyone would define concealment as posting yourself on the Internet. And I assume it, how long did it take them to remove that particular container? Probably not very much. My guess is you remove every container uh, and you probably should charge it for all the things that you have to remove. Uh, but I think 20 years of sentences, uh, even my I, – I just think it's kind of silly about pranksters. If it becomes an absolute epidemic, I think with all these kids, some sanctions ought to be done. But I well, don't. by the way, in some communities, they are now – this is probably theater, but they are posting police officers in front of these freezers to try to no, deter this kind really? of behavior. Yeah, this is – some local look, police departments have been on. Well, I, 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 this too will yeah, pass, look, Troy. Look, Troy, look, Troy, Troy this mean, too will pass. Um, come on, in the in the U household, this is the way we spice our food. I mean, see, that's on. very disappointing <laughs> because I figured that I you mean, would share my no, position. The proper I mean, reaction like, to this kind of thing is summary execution. No, I mean, really? Come on, I would like. I this is why we should still have spanking. Like, this is a yes. person who should just be spanked. They don't. They shouldn't suffer some kind of long, you know, long-lived adult into adulthood. Sanction, but she should. Now, you know, she's a, audience, and this is like where we should still have some kind of, you know, some kind of spanking or shaming or something. But like shaming, like I think she's seventeen, person. so you got to be careful 17. with the spanking yeah. rationale. You know, John, she should have been spanked in the past. Well, maybe Richard lived in uh, less of a state of nature than I grew up. But when you were a kid, that's how you established possession of food. Like if you wanted the ice cream. <laughs> You licked it, and then it was yours. It's like it's like John Locke walking around the wilderness. No, 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 wait. That's what making them his own. So, but now she's a little. <laughs> but older. she didn't even purchase it, John. <laughs> she's a little older than that. But she, like, she didn't purchase is, the ice cream. 
yeah, you know, come on. She was it was a prank. She wasn't really trying to hurt anybody. She's an idiot. That's why, you know, like I totally get Richard's point. Like if this is someone like, you know, the like the case in the 80s, like people, this guy, the I guess they caught, right? Yeah, they, they put poison in Tylenol capsules and stuff like that. Yeah, those people should be sanctioned, perhaps executed, but not um, not a kid licking ice cream. I mean, a thing of ice cream. And I actually think posting it on the Internet is a sign that they weren't really trying to hurt anybody or do, or do anything. Right, so I would, well, I would just well, say I think well, a good spanking is in order, but that's about <laughs> yeah, John, well, how many well, children do you have? Zero. Well, having had three, uh, the timeout generally trumps the spanking as a sanction. Now, what is a timeout? I've never been subjected to it. Well, what happens well, is that your shows no deterrent effect on me at all. You, know, you, have, you oh. have a seven or eight-year-old who starts acting up and may have broken something or thrown it down. You don't spank them. What you do is you say you've got to go to your room and stay there for a half an hour. Yeah, it works. I've been on a timeout like, for 25 like years. someone to law school. Well, well, it's actually it's a, it, what it is. It's a it's an effective form of shaming remedy. Gives them a chance to reflect about it. Then they come back, and, and the trick in doing this with respect to children is it's not that after it's done that you tell them that they were wrong. What they do is they come to the conclusion after having the time out that they were wrong, and that therefore there's a internalization of the norm, Richard, and they're less likely like, to do uh, it again. Richard, I could think of no greater punishment for one. Richard Epstein, that he can't talk for thirty minutes. I can't well, imagine I, you even suffering that kind of. Sanction. I, I have a. I have for a regular work. human being sitting around for thirty minutes is no big deal. <laughs> we're, You're not seven years old, John. Anymore. We're almost. We're almost out of time. So I have a quick closing question. While we're applying John Locke to the supermarket, what's the legal standing of the people who walk around eating like the bag of chips that they haven't yet purchased? Oh, it's purchased the moment you open it. Well, okay. It, but it just. It just seems. That's just trying to decide which bag you want, which flavor you want. No, 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 no. <laughs> Do it, it all the time. It, it, I, I got to tell you. I mean – Really? That's illegal? <laughs> no, if you, open a, if you open a sealed container, it's yours. Uh, the, the thing that does happen is often there's a, you know, there's a package of grapes which has a price on it and there's one loose one there. And somebody sneaks their hands in, takes out the loose grape and eats it and then decides not to buy them. Wait, wait, Richard, you have never been in a Chinese supermarket, have you? <laughs> no, but I mean, I like, have. like everybody tastes the food to decide whether you want to buy it. Well, I mean – I mean really. And, and if it's a local norm, it's fine. But then if you – dude, I mean here's the, the, the dream scenario, John. Somebody goes in. They take a grape. And yeah. then what happens, the inspectors come in and they weigh the package and they see that it's short. A grape? A, a short one grape. You know, it's, it's light. And therefore they <laughs> find it for misrepresentation of goods. Oh, um, this, no I mean, this is, you think that – I will tell you. I once really? had a client. Really? Yeah, and this is the story about the client. Oh. They said, we can get anybody in jail if we want with the meat inspection laws. And this is what they did <laughs> if they wanted to do it. I'm going to give you the inside story. Uh, and then we can end on this note. Um, what you do is you go into the store, and what you do is you see a package of meat which has been sealed for some time. You lick it. You do it. You take it out of the package and you put it on the scale, and it always turns up light. Why is that? Because some of the juice has bleeded out from evaporation. Has uh, bleeded out. Has bled out from the. Uh, uh, from the thing into the paper, but you take the paper off, so it's a short wait. You can get anybody with that trick. Oh. So, so I mean, the, what the lesson is on this is, 
unless you have a customer you know what, Richard, set of this actually gives me the best sanction for this woman, which is to make her lick raw pork, chicken, and make her lick all kinds happening. of stuff in the <laughs> supermarket. Let's make, see how and, much and buy them one and all. Yeah. So if you, <laughs> we'll see how much if you were to lick all actually. of the grapes, you have them. But um, I'm happy to say, <laughs> okay. to end on the appropriate note, uh, the question that you asked was well answered at the time of the Roman law. Oh no! Oh no! Okay, well, there's, 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 there is there is no way out of this other than to eject. All right, fellas, that is our show. Thanks to both of you, as always. Thanks to our producer Scott Immergut, and of course, thanks to our great listeners and everyone at Media Matters who's just trying to pull five second clips. Remember to help us out by rating the show on iTunes. We'll see you soon. Until then, the faculty lounge is officially closed. Cream bells and I start to drool Keep a couple quarts in my locker at school Yeah, but chocolate's getting old Vanilla just leaves me cold There's just one flavor good enough for me Yeah, me! Don't give me no crummy taste spoon I know what I need Baby, I love Rocky Road So won't you go and buy half a gallon, baby? All the soda jerkers know my name When their supply is gone Then I'll be moving on But I'll be back on Monday afternoon You'll see Another truckload's coming in for me All for me, I'm singing I love Rocky Road Join the conversation.